Ladies and gents, can you please welcome to the stage to conduct the Q&A, Donald Clark from the Irish Times, and our special guest this evening, director of the film, Kenneth Brennan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank um, you. Have you spent much time in Dublin over the years? Uh, we played uh, at the Gaiety here, uh -huh. um, yeah, um, 30 years ago. Um, really? Uh, yeah. Really? And uh, I'm not just saying this because I'm here. They were absolutely <laughs> the, the sharpest uh, audiences, um, particularly for Shakespeare. I yeah. remember in Much Ado About Nothing. We'd never got a laugh on this bit at any other venue. We've been all around the world, and uh, there's a piece in Much Ado About Nothing where when Hero is disgraced at the wedding, uh, the friar suggests that um, they should hide her for a while and persuade her, uh, her, the lover who jilted her to come around, and if that doesn't work, they could send her away to a nunnery for the rest of her life. <laughs> um, and suddenly, and Dublin found that funny uh, back then. And, uh, uh, so it was a still rude today, still, actually. Yes, yeah. um, before we go on, I just wonder if you get anything to say about interesting from preparing for this, the news came in that Albert Finney had died. Yeah. Um, uh, do you have any comment on that? Did you yeah, meet him very, at all? It's very sad. Yeah, I did. When I was um, 21, I met him. He was uh, a producer and an investor in a play. My first play as an actor uh, in the West End was uh, something called Another Country, uh, played by, by Julian Mitchell, which uh, starred Rupert Everett. And uh, Albert Finney was, the, uh, was one of the investors, and he was incredibly kind. And the nicest thing he ever did was that on the first night of that play, and I was really a stranger in a strange land, and my mum and dad couldn't have been more out of their comfort zone than to be coming round after a, 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 a night, first night in the West End. And frankly, it was all a little bit stilted. We didn't really know what to do. We understood that this would be some crazy, glamorous showbiz night, but it wasn't really. It was a bit, it was a bit kind of awkward until in comes uh, a well-oiled Albert Finney. <laughs> uh, Albert Finney, and he was just fantastic with my mum and dad. He was absolutely fantastic. And he talked about me, he said, uh, this, this, lad is, this lad's just got off the bus, that's what he said. He's just got off the bus, but he's done nicely. Very nice job tonight, Ken, very well done. And uh, my dad, because my dad loved the horses, Albert Finney loved the horses. Dad, Albert's dad was a, was a bookie. My dad had a bet every day of his life and loved the horses. So they, they bonded uh, uh, over that. And, um, and, uh, and he said, my dad said to him, uh, he says, oh, Mr. Finney, what, uh, what, uh, what do you like? Uh, what do you like to do? You know, what do you like to do when you're not acting? And he said, I like to eat, drink, <laughs> eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, and he was. And every time I saw him subsequently, he would say, he'd say hello. I'd never worked with him; it was great regret. But I saw his work. He was a magnificent actor. But he was a terrific, terrific fellow. I'll never forget what he did for my mum and dad. That's very interesting to hear. Um, all is true. Um, wonderful film. I greatly enjoyed it. Um, there's a kind of tentative 
nod in the title. I mean, obviously, it's explained the origins of it at the start of the film. Um, but we're bound to ask you the title like that. Um, how much of this is true? How much do we know about the later life of well, Shakespeare? Well, you know, I want to ask exactly the same question of William Shakespeare, who used the title, has his alternate title, for his life of Henry VIII, <laughs> which I'm assuming probably wasn't all true. Um, so we, Ben Elton, in his excellent screenplay, uh, decided that we would start with the, the, the facts that we know. So the, the globe burnt down exactly as we say. It was, a, it was in Act 1, Scene 3. It was the first performance, and it was a faulty cannon that went off, uh, a faulty stage prop, and some embers got into the thatch of the Globe Theatre, and it burned down. All 3,000 people escaped, with only one injury reported from a man whose bottom was singed. <laughs> I swear to God, you'll find the accounts of that in the, in the papers of the time. And, uh, and then when he returned to Stratford, uh, the sexual scandals that, uh, that involved his family were true. John Lane did stand up in that church and, and did uh, call out Susanna uh, Shakespeare. And uh, Thomas Quiney was punished for having had uh, sex out of wedlock, having mm -hmm. just married Judith. Um, he did leave Anne the second best bed. Uh, and Hamnet did die in 1596, aged 11, and no one knew why. And he was part of an unusually small number of um, infant deaths at that time, uh, which was uh, often um, rampant with them. Yeah. Between that, we looked for the, 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 the material in between, we looked at the plays themselves and Shakespeare's preoccupations, as we understood mm -hmm. them anyway, to, to, make, to make the fiction in between. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting that it, has, it comes from, source is the wrong word, but it comes from an unusual place in that, I'm sure a lot of people in this room will have watched uh, Ben Elton's sitcom um, uh, um, Upstart Crow, which um, was an unexpected hit over the last few years. It's an obvious topic for a sitcom. And I wondered what your feelings was, feeling was um, moving on to a film after, aware that audiences will have seen that. Do you have any concerns in your head that they'll have those characters in their head? And people are clever enough to know it's a different yeah. story, a different tone, but some part of them will be thinking, expecting them to burst out in brummy accents and... Well, I, I, I suppose I didn't really think about it. I knew that I thought it was very good and it was very funny, and I, I knew that I had been spent 30 years wanting to try to work with Ben, and we'd had several projects that nearly uh, got off the ground. But uh, I also really embraced the idea, which again is sort of Shakespearean, that uh, uh, high and low comedy or high and low art mm -hmm. always existed in his plays and in the deepest and darkest of his tragedies. He always brings on, sometimes to brilliant comic effect, and sometimes it annoys people who want their, their great art purer than sure. this. He brings in the low comedians, so mm -hmm. you get to... Uh, the beginning of the, or the end of the fourth act in Hamlet, and suddenly the gravediggers come on and are very, very, you know, earthy and and um, and not necessarily in sync with existential despair. It's exactly what Shakespeare wants, though that that juxtaposition mm -hmm. of, of of something much uh, cruder or even coarse. Um, and I think, for, for my money, actors are always at their best when they have real, you know, funny bones. I think comedy is essential, and uh, so Ben's sensibility, which is of a of a very, in a way, very serious political writer, um, and, and uh, in his novels, and and, uh, and a great comic writer was was always somebody who, in the novels, showed a, a capacity for drama that I yeah. thought would be would be something that that also now that he'd swatted up on Shakespeare, <laughs> so 
extensively might be a great combination. And how did you come to it then? I mean, you, from what you're saying there, you suggested that you conceived the idea together, the two of you. Is that the case? I, I pitched him the idea. We, we, I got to be a guest star in, in, in one of the, in the, in the Christmas episode of Upstairs. Doing your dad's accent, I would say. <laughs> exactly, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so... Um, uh, it was we'd had a 30 year conversation he'd seen me in, in a production of Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing the very one that played here actually all those years ago um, directed by Judy Dench mm-hmm. and he thought that we'd made some of it up he said we were changing the lines <laughs> and I said no this is, the, the language is so direct and naturalistic and Judy Dench is determined for us to play it that way that's what you're seeing mm-hmm. and, uh, and ever since then we talked about Shakespeare and when I did Upstart Crow I, I said Could, now that you know what you know and he'd already dealt with an episode that de- dealt with the death of Hamlet I, I said what about these last three years in his life when the globe has burned down and when he, he somehow has to make sense of his life if that's what he is going to do or at least find something else to do that isn't mm-hmm. writing 37 plays and, and, and being the most prominent writer of the age and he does we know go home he decides to go home and things matter to him like, uh, like buying this coat of arms it matters to him um, that he has the right to be called gentleman for whatever reason. He seemed very sensitive about his father's own disgrace. His father was arrested for usury. He was a former mayor of Stratford. It seemed to me that 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 there was a sort of perfect opportunity to for Ben to write something about the, the connection between the man and the genius, which is something I've always been interested in since I first hitchhiked to Stratford when I was 16 yeah. and looked around these places and watched these plays and wondered how the two things went together. Well, it's true because we do tend to turn geniuses into gods, don't we, and forget that they, you know, they we walk want... on two legs and, you know, sure. make bad smells in bed and do all the things that ordinary people do. For sure, and, and, and also we sometimes want them to be mad, bad and dangerous to know, you know, we want them to have fantastic, glamorous lives instead of, you know, we don't necessarily want our geniuses interested in, in having a mortgage. It's been Marlowe rather yeah. than Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> the modern idea of genius is, is sort of post the romantics. It's Byron. It, it, it's, you know, you've got to lead, lead, lead a really glamorous mm. life at the same time as, as doing fantastic things. I guess Shakespeare is closer to what Flaubert described when he, when he talked about artists should be bourgeois in their private life and revolutionary in their art. Mm. And it's, the only, it's the only way you'll have time. It's the only way you'll have the energy was, was mm. the sort of theory behind that. Um, and so often there's a disparity, isn't it? If you read the letters of Mozart, uh, you know, he's a, he's a potty-mouthed boy and, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and yet the music is sublime and I don't know why that surprises us, but it does. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned Judy Dench there. It's an interesting casting here. I was talking to you earlier in the week and you, you made an interesting point if you can reiterate that I might not be asking you about the dramatic age difference between you and Judy Dench if the genders were reversed, because men have got away for years mm-hmm. with you know sixty-year-old movie stars romancing thirty-year-old female act- mm-hmm. actors in movies. Um, nonetheless, it is interesting because the age difference was, I think, only about eight years between yes. um, Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway, and it's, it would be discreet to Jane Judy, but more than that in your case. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about that. What your thinking was. That she's ageless and brilliant and uh, time <laughs> and she just is, and, and, and of course she's a master Shakespearean. She's a wonderful person. She's really a wonderful person, um, uh, and also an unsentimental artist. You know, she likes to surprise people. Uh, and if I if I may use immoderate language and quote the dame, um, <laughs> uh, so please forgive me if you're likely to be offended by this. Uh, but she, when when she 
decided she was doing the job and somebody rang and said, oh, I hear you're doing that uh, Shakespeare film with Ken Brown. Are you playing his mother? She said, fuck off, I'm his wife. <laughs> so uh, she, was, she was very keen to... Very keen to establish that uh, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a problem. Well, she's of Irish background as well, so yes, like yourself, thank so, you do, yeah. <laughs> so you have to wield swear words. Yeah. Um, so I'll come to the audience, by the way, in, in, a, in a few minutes. So prepare questions um, for us. Um, but if you can endure me a bit longer, I'll put a few more to you. Um, one thing which is very intriguing, um, and I think it's a situation that's changed over the last few years, is that. I would have said 20 years ago this notion of the Shakespeare authorship question, and that's to say whether this man from Stratford actually wrote all these plays, was the preserve of cranks and tinfoil hat wearers. It's now quite respectable people, friends of yours, colleagues of yours like Derek Jacobi and um, others um, uh, uh, are, not, are, not, are not putting forward this case. It's addressed in the film a little bit, there's a nod towards it, there's a significant nod towards it in Upstart Crow. What's your feeling about that? And my feeling is that it is all fascinating, and I enjoyed enormously a film of seven or eight years ago, Anonymous, by mm -hmm. Roland Emery. I thought it was an absolutely fascinating film, brilliantly done and acted. Um, but in, in this, and, and, and I respect and revere people like Derek, people like Mark Rylance, and they have different views, and, and I'm open, I would say I'm open-minded about it, but in this particular film, I wanted to talk about the man from Stratford, mm. about whom we have a number of, uh, of facts, and there's no, currently there's no smoking gun uh, around those other theories, all of which I, I, do, I absolutely mean are completely beguiling, but they, they do, they are affected by the notion, I think, that uh, all art is autobiographical. Sure. Uh, and so the ingenious ways in which the life stories of Francis Bacon or the Earl of Oxford can be read parallel to the events inside Shakespeare's plays are quite brilliant sort of deductions. They bump up against you know, material and mm. circumstantial things, sometimes to do with who that, when that candidate died, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but, but I still find it fascinating, I must say, but... I'm drawn to the, to the man from Stratford, and I'm, I'm drawn to, to all the sort of inconsistencies and contradictions that this, this, the film hints at. And also, I'm a great believer, being a working-class boy myself, and I've been a, you know, the idea of sitting at the Irish Film Institute talking to all you good people, um, you know, 40 years ago, I, I never wouldn't have... I mean, it would be like going to Venus. It'd be so, such an extraordinary thing to think about. So, for me, it ain't such a jump to think, not that in any way I compare myself or something like Shakespeare, but that, but that you, but the, the, the idea that a kid who we don't even know went to grammar school mm. or see, appeared not to have a university education or any of those things, nevertheless could be in possession of a unique imagination mm -hmm. that made anything possible, that I believe in. Uh, interesting you touch on that, that, that talk about yourself as a working class boy who went to RAL, and I was interesting when I was writing an obituary um, about Albert Finney today, that of course he was in that first generation where Rada really changed and where English theatre and cinema really changed after Look Back in Anger mm -hmm. that allowed what they would patronisingly call regional voices uh, into the theatre, allowed more, allowed more working class voices into the theatre. Now, I'm interested, you then came you know, 20 years later and kind of availed possibly of those changes. We hear a lot now that that's changed back, that... that it's harder for a working class actor to succeed and maybe this is why there are so many um, very good actors from extremely posh public schools who are now prominent in the business. What's your feeling about that? Do you think it would have been harder for you if 
you were born 20 years later, 30 years later. Uh, well, my, my direct experience, so I'm now uh, the president of RADA, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm aware of, um, you know, the, 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 the intake. And I would say the, uh, the inclusivity and the financial help available uh, attends to that ongoing necessary issue of the possibility of inviting the most talented people from whatever backgrounds into a, into a place mm -hmm. like that. When I, when I went there, I, I uh, was lucky. I certainly would not have been able to afford to go, but my, that was, uh, my local council uh, paid for both fees and, uh, for, uh, and for maintenance as well, so mm -hmm. living expenses. So I regard that as a great, that was a great, great privilege and hard-earned, I think, by um, uh, uh, some of those kinds mm -hmm. of some of those kinds of movements. I think it, there's, uh, to be honest, I think that the whilst the concern is genuine and real and needs to be listened to, I don't think the the, the practical issue is as uh, is as predominant as people think. That's mm -hmm. that's my view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. the options are there. You think? Uh, yeah, you... I think certainly the help. I think the help is there, but I think that it's it's. Uh, I mean, you do, it does have to be. Attended to, it's important that there's, there is, there is, in my view, that there is access for all. It's, I mean, across all art subjects, of course, funding and, and, and the ability to pursue vocational um, uh, occupations like that is, is continues to be under threat. So, it, it's something that, that certainly, at rather my direct experience with a, a current uh, example of that very thing is that 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 work is in action at all times. Mm, important. Uh, a question from the audience: Did raise your hands? Um, uh, let's make it easier for them across the microphone. This lady there, the mic can, microphone right to your right, which will be with you imminently. Um, so first of all, I have to say I'm a huge fan of the Much Do Better thing, and I, I love this film. It was, it was brilliant. Like, congratulations, Griffin. Um, obviously, you've been so heavily involved in like multiple different portrayals and like um, depictions of, of Shakespeare plays and stuff. Um, so I guess my question is, how did it feel to like get to play the man himself after spending so long studying his work? And uh, how has your previous Shakespeare experience like influenced your portrayal on screen that we saw today? Uh, well, thanks very much, and, and uh, the, all, all of the work on Shakespeare, I think, had a big impact on, um, on, on, on playing him, um, because, um, for instance, specifically, well, a couple of years ago, I was in a production of Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale, with, with Judy Dench playing Paulina, who was a, who's a phenomenal female character in Shakespeare. She speaks uh, truth to power and, and, and Judy's uh, spiritedness and un uncompromising sort of voice in that I think was quite an inspiration to Ben for Anne Hathaway's character. But for me, inside that play, which is partly the story of a man whose actions ultimately caused the death of his child and f for whom the longing for that lost child pervades the play, right through to the end where the longing of it is so is so intense, it's almost as if Shakespeare in that play and in those late plays chooses, as he does, to use magic as a dramatic device to try to make it all okay. The sort of the longing for the reunification of families is so intense that it's as if this is a man at the, in the, at the evening of his life looking for um, a fairy tale to, to mend what, what life tells him cannot be mended, the implacable fact of death. And in the case of the death of a child, this... Uh, distressing depth of what they call in Hamlet the, the poison of deep grief and so to have experienced that I think was to at least 
have a starting point because that's a preoccupation not only in that play but in the other late plays. He writes about the separation of twins. He writes about the difficulties between fathers and daughters. And so to have been around all of that was, was very was, I think, very informative. And then I did other quite sort of simple things, which I went to the National Portrait Gallery and I sat in front of the, the Shandos portrait of uh, William Shakespeare. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful picture. Reproductions do it no justice at all. And the eyes in that portrait are very, very alive. They're very inviting. I mean, maybe as an actor you go you use all sorts of projections, but I stood in front of it and I thought he was real and alive and he has that Mona Lisa look, so it doesn't matter where you move, <laughs> he's watching you, so you can commune with the fellow. And those eyes are wry and twinkly and a bit provocative and um, um, I felt like they were saying, go on, have a go. <laughs> <laughs> and you actually physically change your face, your makeup on for us. Always, whenever we have this conversation, you always think of Olivier who was... Uh, who always said that he needed the nose or mm. he needed that, you know, the hunchback yeah. or whatever it was he was putting on. Once mm. he put on, he felt, does that help in some way? I mean, it's not something you do very often, but that sort of prosthetic assistance help you get into the role? It does because there's, a, in this case, there's also a process. You get there very early in the morning and, and it, it, we got it after months of testing. We got it down to a couple of hours. Two brilliant people, Vanessa White, the makeup designer, and Neil Gordon, the prosthetics designer, each worked on me at the same time and I would sit down and close my eyes and two hours later I would open my eyes and William Shakespeare was looking at me and so that was a very unusual thing you know it was a, it was a, that was definitely a, a sort of time travel-y thing and, and every time you caught yourself in the mirror of a day it would be surprising and occasionally because our, our little unit base for the camera crew was a little distant from this beautiful house we were shooting in. It was next to a little garden centre. And so I would walk uh, backwards and forwards and I swear to God I saw a woman fall off her bicycle <laughs> and she literally she drove into the hedge because she was not expecting William Shakespeare to walk past while she was buying her hyacinths. It's your fast show sketch, isn't it? <laughs> it, is. yes. it was. Um, anybody else? Um, yes, right. Um, the microphone is trotting its way to you. Hi, Kev. Hi, yeah. um, you've got so many strings to your bow, so many masks you wear. Um, last time I saw you was in the Lyric in Belfast. You were wearing very little clothes right. <laughs> with Rob Brydon. Um, um, as I said, you do so many things. Do you have a favourite? What makes you happiest? Are you always you're happy just doing lots of different things? Uh, I'm happy with the sort of complementary nature of some of these things. I was profoundly happy making this picture. This was, a, this was a joy in every uh, sense. It was absolutely, I got to make it exactly as I, I wanted, although that means also talking to a lot of people like Judy and Ian and Ben. So it was a big collaboration, but it was not subject to the big sort of commercial considerations that can produce certain kinds of pressures. So uh, for me, it was a way of sort of thanking William Shakespeare for giving me a career, and, 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 but, but also trying to, yeah, to understand and lots of things at once, you know, this thing between the, you know what constitutes a human being, what constitutes a genius, and how you deal with people who who um, you admire and who, in, in in this case, you can surprise people about. Ever since I first encountered Shakespeare, I've been aware of the tension between uh, those people who find him entirely uninteresting or boring, or you know, like watching paint dry or hearing paint dry, and those like me who, when it's done well, find it sort of life changing. So. Um, I love getting into that sort of mix and seeing if something like this nudges people in any kind of way to think a little differently. So this was a, a beautiful, beautiful, profound satisfaction to have the privilege of doing it. I can't tell you how, how lovely it was. Um, <laughs>
spirit of democracy, I think we should, we should go as far away as possible. Lady in the black hair, the rough stuff, yes. But, so we're not favouring the front, as it were. Yes. Uh, I was really very pleased to see um, reference in the fact that Shakespeare also wrote about men in his sonnets. Was it like important to include that in the movie? Yeah, you know, uh, the, um, this issue of uh, Shakespeare's sexuality, or really actually the issue of, of, you've raised it already, who was he? Was he in fact someone else? Was it a great, is it a great conspiracy theory? He wasn't really a man from Stratford, he was a man from somewhere else. And then the, the sort of elusiveness that people find in Shakespeare, you know, was he a Catholic, was he Protestant, was he political, with a small p, big P, libertarian, some say he's a communist. Mm -hmm. uh, some, Ian McKellen used to do a one-man show where he said uh, he thought he hated w women uh, because he, he challenged the audience to suggest whether the, they thought there were any successful marriages in Shakespeare. <laughs> he, he believed that there, that there weren't, there absolutely weren't, with one single exception, which was the Macbeths. <laughs> uh, and, and they kill people. So, uh, so there's so many questions about Shakespeare, including this one that, that Ben really seized on, um, which was the idea that the Earl of Southampton, to whom Shakespeare had extravagantly dedicated both this group of sonnets and, and, and Venus and Adonis, a uh, great narrative poem, um, many of them, the sonnets dedicated to a dark lady, but mainly to this fair youth. Um, and although Ian's a little older at the end of the story that we see him here, obviously he's a very glamorous figure. And I think that dramatically, the, 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 the sort of what you might call the sort of ordinary complexity, or you might even say modernity, of a, of a, of a family dynamic in which, at least in this story for a while, we follow a heterosexual couple in a, in a in would-be sort of conventional marriage suddenly be... Uh, detoured by the possibility that his bisexuality or, um, or gayness it w meant that these sonnets could have been something that betrayed this, this love for uh, an, another man. And, and, and in bringing it up, not only does it offer the chance for someone who could not read or write, uh, Anne Hathaway and later Judith, to give voice um, in a way that, that um, the time did not allow them to do, give voice in this instance to what I think is fair enough to suggest might have been, you know, hurt or humiliation at the idea that this public declaration, it would seem, to another man was, was, was something that he could do. And then while he explains that, he still doesn't send Southampton away, does he? He still sees him, doesn't he? Um, and then to see Shakespeare vulnerable at the idea of what seems to be the object of his, of a pure and romantic love, the one that got away or the one that could take him away from all of this, that seemed like a nice, complex, chewy scene. And then if that gets knocked back, not only by the unrequited thing, I love your work, but I don't love you in that way, as well as, and by the way, you're an oik. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's never gonna work, you, because you're, you know, you're from the wrong side of the tracks. That felt, in a Shakespearean way, beautiful and complex, and it's, a, it's an absolutely sort of original, brilliant Ben Elton idea, but part of who he is as a writer uh, that I think um, just came, came natural to him and, and, and felt as though it, 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 it looked at something that I think is legitimate to consider about Shakespeare. It does, right. It's, uh, it's interesting. I know I'm just, you're, a, you're a sort of age, a year or two younger than you, but I mean, certainly in my generation, being 
taught the sonnets in school, we were told they're not homosexual. So there's always this great notion, you know, that no, in back in those days, men talked to one another in that way. They're not homosexual. There was this great fear amongst, I think, often quite liberal teachers, even at that day, in one of the more conservative era, people would think that way. Um, Interesting question, I must say. Uh, it is. I'd like to think. Um, I kind of. I'm of the view that sort of anything's possible. Um, I guess. I guess. Uh, time's winged chariot has uh, raced me. Raced me on past a number of parts that maybe it might have been a nice thing to to play. But but uh, I, I guess I I, I. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily uh, exclude anything or, or deny me or indeed anybody the opportunity to play something that they were drawn to that it was possible to do. So um, it's a good question. You, I, now I shall I'll go away and think about that. <laughs> uh, we're short of time, but just talk to us a bit about other things that you're doing. I, I'm just looking at um, how busy you are this last two years. It's quite frightening. I mean, you finished Murder of the Orient Express not that long ago, two years ago or so. Um, you've got this film coming out, Artemis Fowl um, is coming as well, which is a colossal production. Um, tell us how you juggle the time. That, um, how does a man accomplish all of that in that relatively short space? Oh, of course, Death in the Nile is a pre-production, isn't it? Yeah, well, we hope to shoot later in the year. Yeah, yeah so uh, how, do you, how do you manage it, that? Well, you know, I think it can, sometimes it all looks a bit noisier and busier than it really is. I can tell you that I'm, I'm uh, super lucky and I touch wood, I've been healthy. And um, so I'm, I'm, I guess, I, uh, answering your question, I do love what I do. I'm aware that... People like me don't get a chance to do this stuff all that often. I've had periods in my professional career where people have not asked me to do things quite so uh, regularly. But, um, you know, I've been super lucky, dead lucky. When I was here last few years ago with, at the festival with uh, Cinderella, I got a call from uh, Sean Bailey, who runs uh, as president of Disney Live Action, and he said, uh, have you ever heard of a book called Artemis Fowl? And a character called Artemis Fowl? I said, funny you should say that, because uh, maybe two weeks earlier, I'd been on a holiday with my wife and uh, her sister and, and uh, our nephews, so two lads who were eight and ten, mm. who had made me read it. They said, you've got to read this. is brilliant. This could be a film. This could be a film, Uncle Ken. Um, in fact, the very lad, who, the, the, the youngest of them who was keen on it, is his name Sam. Sam Ellis played Hamlet in this film. And uh, so he'll also, he's now, of course, looking for a percentage of any profits from, <laughs> from, from Artemis Fowl. Um, uh, uh, but because that was a Disney picture, and so I got a chance to meet with Owen, and, um, and, uh, and, and Connor McPherson has done a wonderful job on the screenplay, and we cast, we, 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 we met 1,200 lads for the part of Artemis Fowl. Certainly from all, anybody in this country who applied, came in and did something. We saw some people from around the globe. Very tough for kids who aren't from here to do an Irish accent, mm. I tell you that. Um, and in the end, we found two terrifically promising youngsters, Ferdia Shaw, who plays Artemis, mm. who's a Kilkenny boy, 
and uh, Laura McDonald, who's from here. Yeah, I talked to her at Christmas. Yeah, she's a sweetheart. They're both so so. They, um, that was a that was a joy. I must say, responsibility. A lot of people love those books. Owen's a terrific guy. He's been patient for a long time. You don't want to mess it up. So I <laughs> so I hope I don't. No pressure there. No pressure. No pressure. Look forward to that in August, and thank you for joining us, and thank you for being a good audience as well. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you.